Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden the f- Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Shannon Huffman Polson is the founder of the Grit Institute, as well as an in-demand international author and leadership speaker. She was also one of the first women to fly the Apache helicopter, and at the tender age of 19, she summited Denali. Shannon, thank you so much for being here with us today. With the release of your new book, The Grit Factor, and you're a busy mom, I'm sure you're taking care of plenty of things on that front, and so much traction, especially with the new book. We see you on HBR podcasts. You were on the Today Show earlier in the year, and I'm, I'm sure you're doing a lot of guest speaking events. So thanks for taking the time to, to join us here today. It's an honor to be with you. Thanks so much. Shannon, I got I to gotta just jump in. Immediately, I think to myself, you know, I, I just watched the, the Today Show uh, interview that you did. Wonderful job. But, I, but I, I couldn't help but think, what was more nerve wracking? You know, I would think that being on the Today Show is a little, is a little rough. So what was, what was worse? Was it flying attack helicopters in Bosnia or being on the Today Show? <laughs> I, I got to go with the helicopters. I mean, although the Today Show was, was nerve-wracking right up to it, but it's such a quick thing. You know, you walk on yeah. it like you're walking off. So it's, it's, it's a, a pretty quick deal, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Both, both were a lot of fun, helicopters and the Today Show. <laughs> so uh, that, see, uh, that, that, do you think that the things, uh, you know, you have a background of, if I remember right, you are an Ironman uh, finisher. That's so right. for people that don't know, 140.6 mile triathlon. You were a 19-year-old uh, woman that summited Denali. You obviously flew attack helicopters. Do you think all of these things made an experience like the Today Show easier? Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, there's so many people on the Today Show, right? So, uh, <laughs> so maybe I think it puts it a little in perspective. And at the end of the day, you know, when you walk on to the set at the Today Show, it's it's a very small space, so it doesn't look like it's this giant place. And I've been keynoting and talking to companies okay. across the country and around the world for a long time. So I'll walk onto a stage, and there might be three thousand people in the audience. So walking into a small place with a couple of couches, you just have to not tell your Millions of people are watching you, and that makes it a lot easier. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I just wanted to throw that question in there. That was that was interesting. And uh, Shannon, I got to say, Ron and I just finished the book not too long ago. Both of us. I want to just say thank you, thank you, thank you, because I told Ron when I I think I was one chapter in, and I literally called him and I said, "Oh my gosh, I wish I had been able to write this book." It just resonates, I think, with anyone in leadership, anyone going through hard things in their life, because there's a wide spectrum, anything from your mountaineering time to your piloting time to how hard it was to be a woman in a very male-dominated organization as you go into. And Ron, being a pilot and myself, prior Air Force, we just really resonated with all that. I just want to thank you for writing the book. But what do you think from all of your experiences even with raising children, adding on to that list of amazing things you've done, how do you think that has prepared you for what we are experiencing in 2020? It has been one heck of a year globally, 
And do you think that's built resilience and grit for you to handle this pandemic and everything else going on in the world? I, I think the answer has to be yes, because I think that at the end of the day, anytime you go through hard things, you get better at doing hard things. And we'll pro- probably come back to that theme, I think, probably later in this conversation. So, so doing hard things makes you better at doing hard things. So yes, absolutely, that builds grit, that builds resilience. And at the same time, every circumstance is so unique and so different. And that's where I think we have the opportunity to draw on our stories from before and the strengths of having overcome challenges in the past and saying, okay, well, hey, I did it before. This is how I managed it before. So let me draw on that because I may not be feeling it right now. Right. And so, so yeah, I do, I do think for sure that's the case. I think in every circumstance and especially parenting and having a family, it does put things in perspective in terms of what's important. Right. And, and I think that's extremely helpful to have, and we'll probably come back to talking a little bit about purpose, I'm guessing at some point, but, but when you do keep in mind those, those very few things that are important, a lot of the rest of it falls away. And I think that uh, has certainly been a helpful way to keep things in perspective, but I think all of us are struggling with this year for sure. Yeah, you know, this this is a perfect lead into I did your first exercise in the book, which I believe it was the timeline. And and you yeah. kind of touched on that. And, and I, you know, it was enlightening to me, there were some things that popped up that, that I was like, Oh, I didn't realize that that I had done that. So could you explain that timeline exercise, and then maybe go into why that's so important? Why is it important for us to Go back, kind of reflect on our lives and and say, I've I've been there before. I just don't remember it, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think there's so much that we can learn that we may not have paid attention to the first time around or even the second or third or fourth times around. So the exercise that I call the uh, lifeline exercise is part of the first chapter. And the first, let me just kind of give the framework for the book initially, is I have the the book of the grit factor came about because of being asked by a young lieutenant to mentor her as she began the same journey that I had taken through flight school, through army flight school, and then into that career. And I realized, you know, my experience as one of the first women to fly the Apache was surely somewhat unique. It was also a while ago. So how can I scale the information that I provide to this young leader while also, if I do that work, scaling the people to whom this information is available? So I started this process of interviewing dozens of women in the vanguard of their military fields. Happened to be women. They happened to be military. They were all in the vanguard. They were all forced to go through really a double crucible, right? The challenges of an incredibly demanding job, in addition to oftentimes times environments that weren't particularly receptive to their being there. So I think of that as a double crucible. And one of the uh, things that um, came out of all of these stories is those women, those leaders who persevered, who were successful, were those who had spent the time to go back over their lives and to own their own stories. Now, this isn't um, just an exercise into the past, although the book is certainly framed into commit, learn, and launch, which I think of as part of the grit triad that corresponds to past, present, and future. So in that commit phase, in that kind of past phase, we go back and say, hey, this is what my life has been. I can't choose the raw material that goes into it, but I do get to choose how that narrative is shaped. And not only do I have the opportunity to do that, I have the responsibility to do that. So the timeline exercise asks you to go back over your life and look at those points in your life that were kind of highs and lows. And obviously the big stuff is both highs and lows, right? 
And then pull out those things that you learned in going through either a positive or a negative experience. Maybe it's a strength that you gained. Maybe it's a weakness that you recognized. Maybe it's a value that you started to articulate. And that's really where you want to end up is saying, okay, out of all of this, here's my strengths. Here's these high points, these low points, these experiences. Here are the things that are the values that I can see that are pulled through all the way. And here's how they connect. And then that leads you into the next exercise. But that's really some pretty deep introspective work. It's not kind of just saying, oh yeah, I was a swimmer in high school and I did track in college. It's it's not something like that, right? It's a lot deeper work and it's important work because that really grounds us in who we are and who we want to be. You know, I love that you talk about the highs and the lows because it immediately I jumped to just like putting this picture in my brain of you on the top of Denali in Alaska. And I'm thinking that's where that's a power moment, right? To stand on the summit of one of the seven summits and be like, I did this. I'm so proud of myself. I'm exhausted and I want to die, but I feel great. But you've also found this grit and resilience in lows in your life as well right? And you wrote a book about it. It was your first book, which is fascinating. Do you want to talk a little bit on how the highs and lows can really impact maybe the same way or differently how much grit you can find for for other things? Yeah. I mean, they're both important. They both will end up reflecting on those strengths, those weaknesses, those areas for improvement, those things that you learn. I almost, I think you learn and maybe I should speak for myself here, but oftentimes learning from the lows (laughs) is actually, there's more learning to to come from those lows than there is from the highs. And and particularly as we, if we talk about pushing through hard things, right? Doing hard things makes you better at doing hard things. And yeah, my first book was called North of Hope, Daughter's Arctic Journey. And that is a story of memoir. It's a much more personal story than The Grit Factor. And it's a story about a trip that I took in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge the year after my father and stepmother were killed by a grizzly bear uh, while they were on a kayaking trip. And the year after I took the exact same trip, followed exactly along the same river, stopped at all the places that they had stopped. And, And then I had their journal available. So when I wrote North of Hope, I was able to weave those two journeys together, as well as memories of growing up with my dad, who I was very close to. And... Yeah, that that was a very difficult time. I mean, that 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 counts as one of the the hardest times of my life. And I think, in a way, just as you asked at the very beginning of this podcast, like a lot of the things that I had done earlier in my life probably prepared me for that. Um, not prepared. You can never be prepared for that, but but helped to start to build some of that resilience. And at the same time, you know, I. I think it's really important to say that one of the things I know for sure after that time in uniform and the time in the corporate world and the time in the Arctic, the time doing long course triathlons and climbing Denali, is that grit is not something that is just for mountain climbers and military pilots, right? It's something accessible to every single one of us. And North of Hope is an example of a time when it was a necessity to find that, to develop that, to find that, to access that in different ways. But yeah, I think you learn probably, you probably learn more from the lows than you do from the highs sometimes. Gosh, you know, obviously I think, what a great story. I can't wait to, by the way, that, that book's next on my list. I can only imagine the courage it took to do that. I, I mean, you're going, you're following the footsteps of your father that was killed by a grizzly bear. Did that, I mean, obviously you're going, okay, 
is this going to happen to me? I mean, uh, I, I just, again, what, what great courage to, to do that was, I mean, how did you come out of that? Did, was it very, was it something that was almost like a therapy thing for you or, or, or would you say, Hey Ron, just go get the book. Yeah. yeah I would say, Ron, go get the book. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, one of the things that I, I don't believe in, in the word, clo- the word or the concept of closure at all. I think it's a journey. And I'm often asked that, oh, was it cathartic? Was it? And actually, I've never experienced catharsis really in almost anything. So, and that's probably my own limitations, I'm sure. But so it was neither cathartic nor was it closure. It was part of the journey. And it it felt to me like a very necessary part of the journey. Mm. You know, not to come back to helicopters too much, but I talk to people about how you have to face directly into whatever the challenge is that's ahead of you. There's absolutely no good way to come at it sideways. You have to turn directly towards it. And that was the best I could do to turn myself towards it and go straight through it. And, and it wasn't obviously as simple as that, but, but it did come down to that at the end of the day. Yeah. And that challenge that you're talking about, I mean, for, for anybody that, you know, is maybe not connecting the dots, that challenge is fear. Right. And so I love your quote on this. One of the quotes that I use with my students, it comes from the, 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 the former somewhat famous boxing trainer, Customato. And he mm-hmm. says that fear is like fire. It can cook for you. It can heat your house, but it also can burn it down. And, and so what, why don't you share what your, I, I love your tagline for what your thoughts are on fear. Yeah, I, you know, I, when I talk to companies, I usually am using military analogies. I haven't talked a lot about North of Pope, although I certainly feel like it would be just as appropriate for lots of these, lots of the scenarios that we end up discussing. But when I think about the helicopter and I think I talk about sometimes uh, a particular experience in Bosnia when we were flying armed aerial reconnaissance in support of the Dayton Peace Accords. And I was there as part of the stabilization force, not the initial force. So they had imposed much stricter rules of engagement to include a hard deck, which means the lowest minimum altitude of 300 feet, which is quite low for a tactical helicopter. I mean, excuse me, quite high for a tactical helicopter, quite low for a civilian helicopter. But for us, that really put us at risk because we fly pretty slowly. We you know, are subject to small arms fire and uh, surface-to-air missiles and anti-aircraft uh, artillery. So really, uh, flying at 300 feet felt felt quite exposed. And we were flying out on one of our very first missions. Now this is, you know, the Mediterranean. It's beautiful infrared picture in that monocle over our right eyes. And we're flying very easy navigation because we're flying along roads because we're doing armed aerial reconnaissance of weapons storage sites of this heavy weaponry. So stuff that has to go on the roads. So we start to slow to this hover at 300 feet. And just as we're starting to slow to this hover so we can do the reconnaissance of this weapon storage site, the sound in our helmets changed. And we were being tracked by one of the most lethal anti-aircraft systems in the world. My backseater and I were in a two, you know, tandem seated attack helicopter. We're loaded with 30 millimeter. We're loaded with Hellfire missiles. Um, He says, what do you want me to do, Lieutenant? Do you want me to break the hard deck? And I said, don't break the hard deck. I knew that was the rule of engagement. I stand by. So I call up to the controlling agency. Controlling agency says, if you're nervous, return to station but don't break the hard deck. Nervous. Yeah, we were, we were pretty nervous. I mean, if they fired, we would be killed. And, and so there was a lot of fear in that. And, and I think we're going to talk a little bit later about making the decision of what to do there. So I'm going to leave it in the fear to talk about fear. Because 
there were a lot of times, and I think it's easy to say, hey, we've got this helicopter pilot here, we've got this mountain climber here. The reality is fear was very much present and um, certainly in the midst of, of that circumstance, but also you know, asking for my first platoon, asking for my first company, everything that I did in the military, I had to earn, of course, probably earn doubly over anybody else that was there, but also ask for. And that was hard because it was an environment that wasn't necessarily... Um, excited about my asking. And, and in each time I would categorize the feeling as fear. And I like to say that fear doesn't have any place in that little cockpit, right? That little cockpit has room for a diet Coke and a pub's bag and that's it. Like I've tried everything else. It's a tiny little space and all of us are in our own cockpits, right? And fear is big and unwieldy. And so what do you do when you feel fear? Because it's a very normal human emotion. And I like to say that fear is just another form of resistance. And I talk about when we take off in the Apache, I'll ask people, which way do you take off in the Apache? And everyone will say up, right? And up is, of course, actually, some people say backwards, but, <laughs> but most people will say up. And I'll say, yeah, up is the end goal. But in the Apache, like in any other aircraft, you, you turn the nose to face the wind. And when you use it the right way, the resistance helps you to rise, right? This is aerodynamics. But also consider fear as just another form of resistance. So what do you do when you face this very normal human reaction of fear in the face of difficult circumstances, scary circumstances? You turn towards it and you move directly through it. Let's just end the show right there. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's, there's the wisdom, right? That's a great one. Thank you. That was and you're such a good storyteller. That's awesome. I, and I have to jump in because it leads right into something that I really want to talk to you about, which is kind of controlling your own narrative. You're very big on that, which it was the most fascinating learn and read for me when I was reading your book, reframing your story, finding or recreating your own narrative, because you can, you have complete control over whether you turn the nose into the wind or you decide to fight against it. Can you tell me, tell me about that and, and what you usually share with people? Because I think that's a very hard concept for people to kind of swallow and, and run with. It is. And I think it's so important to come back to this idea that we're often given raw material that we may not choose, right? Many of us might be fortunate enough to have always chosen our circumstances, but there are many of us who have had a lot of things happen that you would not choose to have had happen. And uh, and I sort of think of this as this raw material of our story or the raw material of our lives, right? I think that the real power is that you have this opportunity and this ability to take that and to shape that and to say, what is my narrative going to be? Am I, you know, if I grew up with a terrible childhood and these awful things happened, am I the victim and I can never do anything else? Or am I going to say, you know what? I'm stronger than that. I'm going to be stronger than that. And I'm going to take that strength and do something else. And I'm going to find a way to connect that to a purpose that contributes in the world. And that allows me to propel myself forward. Does that make it less hard? No, it's still hard. There's no question about it. But you can you decide how you're going to use that material in crafting that narrative. And I, you know, my very first keynote that I ever gave when I was first starting out was about how narrative shapes your experience. I'm very, very passionate about it. And and partly because in the part, you know, as writing North of Hope, which is my first book, you realize you've got tons of material, right? I mean, if we were to write about our family relationships and even just as trip, you could write thousands of pages. 
But the reality is you've got to cut it down. You've got to make, a, you've got to find the narrative arc and you have to ruthlessly cut everything else out. So that's the narrative that you ultimately want to be able to tell. And the same thing is true with our lives. You get to say, hey, I, I can't change that this thing happened, but I can decide how much weight I'm going to give it. I can decide how I'm going to let that affect me. And then I'm going to draw this narrative arc of my life that connects to the values that are important to me, connects to my core purpose, and sends me in the direction that I really am working to go. This is how I'm going to contribute to the world. This is why I'm here. And, and it is an opportunity and it's a responsibility. It's not easy to do, but it's absolutely possible for every single one of us. I'm so glad earlier that you brought up that this is not a world just for, dare I say, elite performers or, you know, people in rugged environments. I think there's there's lessons here for all of us. And I think what you just said right there really kind of kind of brings that brings that to light. If I can switch gears just a little bit, one of the things I, I, as for the people that are, are listening that, that don't know me quite yet, I teach at the University of Colorado just down the road in Boulder, and I teach leadership to engineering students. Often I have uh, young female engineers come in and, and you know, I, I mentor a lot of them. And they realize they're facing a daunting task. The statistics are going to tell us that 13% of the engineering field is female. So, you know, just a little more than one out of 10 uh, of engineers are female. And so they know they're, this is a really male-dominated field. And then even more sobering, 40% of them are even going to quit that career or they're never even going to start. And so if you're in my shoes, what would, what's your advice to these young female engineers to have, you know, a little bit like your, your experience in, the, in military aviation, I'm sure. But what's your, what's your advice to, to these young ladies to, to have the grit to navigate that world? Well, the first thing is to get their copies of The Grit Factor. I'm sure you'll help with that. <laughs> I will <laughs> help with that. Mandatory course material. <laughs> and then go through the training at The Grit Institute. In, in some seriousness, I wrote the book that I wanted to have had when I was not just younger, but also going through challenges and, and difficult times. So I think that is the purpose of the grit factor. It's, and it really considers the leader, the grit as not this discrete thing that sort of sits out there that you kind of grab when you need it, but it's really part of an integrated whole. It's part of the whole leader concept. I think one of the things that I was, we've already talked a little bit about the owning your own story and, and part of that, I think, and by extension, although we could talk about this all day, is drilling down to core purpose. The second part uh, of the grit factor really focuses on the present. And in that section, and this is something that I would recommend, actually, that I don't think that I thought of as I was starting out. It talks about drawing your circle. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. Part of drawing your circle is building your team. And we'll talk about the different elements of that team. Um, part of that is being on somebody else's team as well, by the way, and supporting them. It's uh, not just good for them. It's good for you. And besides being the right thing to do, it benefits everybody. So that's, that's, I think, really worthwhile. And part of that exercise, which is very hard, especially for a young person to do, it's actually hard for any of us to do, is to say, that person doesn't support me. And that person doesn't support my work and the effort that I'm putting into this. And it might be a personal connection and it might be someone else, that person is now outside that circle. And so drawing that circle is both inclusive and exclusive on purpose. But we talk in the grip factor a lot about those different relationships that are part of that circle. And having your team is important. And I, you know, I always give the analogy with the, the Apache, there's two of us in that aircraft, right? There's two of us in that all glass cockpit. 
but it takes a team to launch that thing, right? My crew chiefs are part of that team. My platoon sergeant's part of that team. It's a team that's going to get you through as a young woman engineer or an older woman engineer or an older, older male engineer for that matter. So really spending some time on those relationships and, uh, and understanding where it is that you should put your time to cultivate those is really important. Excellent. I, I, I am going to have to get them to read that book. So yes, uh, th- uh, that was great. <laughs> I'm going to keep us on the track of leadership because I think it's so important right now. And coming from you, as, as you and I both know, you're taught a very different style of leadership and also team development and team growth in the military. Not always the same thing happening in the civilian world as we've both learned, but what do you think does translate? What can you bring from what we learned in the military so many years ago into the civilian world? And I'm sure you do with your consulting practices, especially in, and I'm quoting you, when it comes to taking care of your people. You put so much emphasis on that. And I think especially now, you know, that we're all virtual. Yeah. And that's very hard on teams. What advice do you have from what you learned in the military for leaders developing their teams today? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I actually think, first of all, aviation is sort of specific. And then the army, it's very unusual, right? The army is very different outside of aviation. The aviation world is not one where you just tell people what to do and then they do it. It doesn't work that way at all, right? There's pilots that have way more experience than you do when you're a young lieutenant and, uh, and you're going to learn from them or, or you're not going to, you're not going <laughs> to, you're not going to succeed. And actually, I think that's probably true for any young leader that if you're not learning from the people around you, you're simply not going to succeed. And if you don't have the humility to do that, you're not going to succeed. Right. So, so, true. Uh, so in that sense, there, there's a similarity, but the taking care of your people is the thread that crosses everything, right? At the end of the day, leadership is about taking care of your people. You take care of your people. They take care of the mission. I think in the COVID environment, it's really challenging, as you bring up, because we're remote. I do think that there are still opportunities to connect and not just to connect like this with Zoom, but to say, okay, how can I check in with people? How can I can I give them a phone call one on one? I mean, it depends on how big your team is, obviously, but you probably have other folks that can help if it's a much larger organization. And the second part of that taking care of your people piece is, and this is also in the learn phase, right? Learn and launch. This is part of the being deeply engaged in the present. This is something that I don't do well. I I have to concede. So when I wrote this book, it's not because I knew all the answers. It's because this is what we all need to learn, including myself in some cases. But one of the most strategic leadership skills that is totally underrated in the sense that we don't focus enough on it nearly enough is listening and active listening. And it came out of every conversation with the general officer that I had the chance to have in preparation for writing The Grit Factor. And as you start to really look at listening and active listening, and actually this is in the military leadership manuals as well, it turns out, I'm not sure I ever, I, I saw it demonstrated very often, but, but there, <laughs> there, is a, there, is, there, there is a way to teach yourself this or to teach your people this and to train yourself in it. But it's hard, especially for us that are type A, right? We're, we're working to get things done and we're knocking things out. It's asking a question and then leaving space for that answer, pausing for that answer. And after that answer, not having jumped to what it is that you're going to say next, but maybe taking a pause again 
and letting there be some space, right? Letting yourself truly internalize what that answer was. Because right now, I think people are experiencing this, this pandemic in very, very different ways. There are some people that are trucking on as normal. There's some of us with small kids at home that are suddenly doing literally two full-time jobs and, and barely making it, right? There are some people who live alone who are who may be very, very lonely. And, and you've got to, there may be people with aging parents who are, are literally afraid because they can't visit them or they are not able to do the things that they need to be able to do. So being able to understand where people are and where they're coming from and what their needs are as a leader, that's pretty critical. And I think making that space for that active listening in this environment, however it is that you make that happen, is really important. And it is still possible. That's absolutely possible. I mean, this all goes to the narrative that you tell yourself, right? If you say it's impossible, of course it is. If you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to figure out how to do this, then you figure out how to do it. And when it comes down to taking care of your team, that's, that's the onus of leadership. It's all about taking care of your team. That resonates with me so much. And it's something I, I teach my students as well, that leadership, it's about people and, and, and taking care of your people is, I don't, I agree with you. I don't think it's emphasized quite enough, but I think it's changing though. I really do think it's changing. It's becoming more of a discussion piece. And that's, I think, a, a direction that we all would be happy to take. Let's go back to your, your great story that you started. Maybe early on in the, in the podcast, you were talking about you're flying, radar lock. You get you got you got radar lock on your helicopter. I, I would assume that tone in your headset is probably one of those things that kind of makes the hair stand up on your arms. Why don't you uh, go through the decision you made? Because I'm going to tell you, as I was reading the book, and because I I, I teach leadership, I was like, what would I do? And I'm yeah. going to tell you, my answer was different than yours. So I want yeah. to know I want to know the insight to how you came up with your decision. Uh, yeah, well, I, well, there's going to be two parts to the story. But in that moment, hovering again over this weapon storage site at 300 feet, right? And we're making a call to the controlling agency. And the controlling agency says, if you're nervous, return to station, but don't break the hard deck. And in that few seconds, we really had to make a decision, really, right? And And that decision was based on, and this is what's important, I think, right? There's based on you know, days and weeks worth of, of briefings and situational awareness of what was going on. It was based on knowing that provocation was more likely than actual engagement. It was based on knowing that there had been no similar type engagement in the last 12 months. And there was really no reason for that to change. It was based on knowing that we hadn't completed the mission and that we were supposed to complete Uh, It was based on knowing that if we violated the rules of engagement, we would be grounded as aviators. That means you don't fly until the investigation is complete. There would be an investigation and uh, we might be sent home. And and so all of those factors played into the decision. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second, because the decision I made was to turn down the volume on the radar tracking device. And we continued the mission. That's how we flew the rest of the time in country. Now, we knew, I think I have to come back to this too, right, that in this kind of a a scenario that the provocation was much, much more likely than engagement. And I think that was that was ex- very, very relevant. We knew that there had been provocation before and that there would likely be provocation again to get us to break the rules of engagement or to respond in a way that would be a lot more potentially controversial. But I, I think that ability or, and I'm not even going to say it was right or wrong, it happened to be fine. You know, it was very important to be on your podcast today. So I had to be back. But I think 
you make those decisions in a relatively short amount of time based on a huge amount of information and based on a certain degree of experience, right? That you are going to have to make these decisions that are synthesizing huge amounts of information. And that's something that experience starts to teach you over time. I think pilots all do it, right? There might be times when someone says, geez, how did you respond to that? And you're like, well, it's, it's, you, we call it air sense in the air, right? You have an air sense, you have a sense of what's going on because you've spent a lot of time in the air. So there was an element of that that is that is very relevant. I've had people get upset with me, actually, uh, in a presentation I gave, actually, at my business school. And I said, well, how is that responsible? How, how could you do that? And anyway, I don't know. It's a, it was a quick decision. And I, all I can explain is that you have to sometimes synthesize large amounts of information. And that's based on the role that, that I was in at the time. So, All right. How would you have done it? How would you have done it? You got to tell us. Yeah. I would have broke. I would have broke the hard deck. I yeah. say, okay, our lives are on the line, and I'll break a rule, and, and I'd rather walk away from this and, and not die. That's probably why I didn't go in the military. I'm not very good with following directions. Situational awareness. You talk about this, and, and, and it's fascinating to me. Being a pilot myself, certainly at, not at your level, but there's a lot of, of evidence to say that situational awareness comes from experience. You know, yeah. and, and and so you kind of touched on that a little bit that. A little bit of, you know, that experience probably helped you make that decision a little bit better than maybe somebody that didn't have that experience. Would you agree with that? I think that's right. And again, I I think smart people could disagree on whether or not that was the right decision, right? Uh, So, and that's the case. It happens to have turned out just fine. I think it happens to, in retrospect, be the right decision. There are plenty of decisions that you make where in retrospect, other information will show that perhaps it was the wrong decision. So you do the best you can in the time that you have and, and with the information you're given. But, but yeah, I think, I think that's right. It, is, it comes from experience. Shannon, thank you so much for sharing. I feel like just a little tiny piece of your incredible journey. So that's amazing. The next time we all three get together, it will be the four-hour podcast. So we'll dig a little nut. <laughs> just like um, hardcore history, right? <laughs> right, right. We do like to end our shows with asking each guest, what advice do you have for people right now when it comes to building mental toughness, resilience, and grit into their actual daily lives today? Yeah. I'm going to go a direction that maybe I certainly did not address in the grit factor. So the first thing is, of course, read the grit factor. I'm going to assume that all of your listeners have already um, purchased their 10 copies. But I will say something that I think is really important right now is that you understand that grit is not sustainable as the full-time operation and that every single one of us has to find a way to unplug and to give ourselves a break and to rest. And I know that might sound counterintuitive for having a show that has been focused on leadership and grit. I have something, I have two different frameworks that I actually developed after the book went to print. And one of them is the grit spiral. And the inside of the spiral is taking care of your physical and your spiritual needs. And that's where you have to be solid before you can go out on that spiral and move into creativity and into innovation. And somewhere in the middle, you know, right after your physical and your, your, your mental and your spiritual needs is your family and it's your social connections. And, and you've got to spend time in that and maybe right now spend a little extra time in that and know that it's not sustainable to go all out all the time. So give yourself a break. I think there is a very real mental and physical uh, 
fatigue that is setting in for a lot of people. And it's necessary to, to take that time that you need to recharge in whatever way that is, that is a healthy way, whether it's out in nature, whether it's with music, whether it's a spiritual practice, but make sure that you're spending time on your relationships and to recharge, and then you'll be ready for the fight again. I'm so glad you brought that up. Because I think that, and and Ron and I are always trying to be as mindful as possible. It, you know, this isn't about just soldiering on and being tough all the time and the being kind to yourself when you fall, right? Because so many people beat themselves up for it. So gosh, that was brilliant. What a great wrap up. It's only because I need it right now. Thanks so much, you guys. You can find Shannon at shannonpulson.com along with her Grit Institute leadership training. We will also post links to her latest book, The Grit Factor, as well as her first book, North of Hope. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.